The following message is by a guest speaker at Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Um, I, I want to introduce myself. My name is Dave, and I serve as one of the pastors at Harvest. And I, this is a familiar place for me. I feel like I'm this kind of like my second home. Uh, I enjoy being with our two churches together. And I want to invite you to just look around for a second. And when I say that, I know half the room, they just keep looking forward. I'm like, look, seriously, look around. Make actual eye contact with some people around you. Especially hold the gaze of some people around you who don't go to your church. I mean, just look right into Hey, what's up? Single people don't look too long. All right. Okay, that's good. All right. I'm asking you to look around because by now, the faces are starting to get a little more familiar. You may not attach a name to every face, but get used to seeing one another because we're just getting started. We're going to be seeing a lot more of each other over the years to come. And so I wanted to talk today about what this is, what's going on here between our two churches. And since we're in a junior high, I thought I'd use a very junior high-ish symbol. Um, Our two churches are dating each other. I think we're actually married. (laughs) And soon we're going to make babies. So I was charged with the assignment of preaching about what the underlying beliefs and scriptures are regarding this idea of a network of churches. And there were a couple approaches we could take. I mean, I, I could go through a, a, presentation, a presentation of how there's the difference between the church, which is one local church, and the church of the capital C, which is many churches together forming the universal church. And that's a very rich doctrine. There's a lot there. But I don't want to give a seminary lecture per se, because we have our two churches together. I thought that where I would put my attention is looking at some of the benefits of when our churches come together in this fashion. What is it we're supposed to do together? Not just what is it, but why would we ever do this? Why would we spend so much energy putting this together? And secondarily, I want to talk about why seeing us together, not so much as an organization or a network, but as a family, is so critically important to what we're doing. If we get together and form just another denomination, why bother? When we're in the CMA, at least other men in Colorado Springs are doing all the heavy lifting, and we just got emails once in a while, and someone put on on a huge convention. We go once a year, and that was that. Why start doing what they did for us and go to all the trouble unless it's going to be qualitatively different than what we had in that larger body. And so I want to look today at why us together as a family will make all the difference in what some of the benefits are of a church network. Now, for most of us growing up, and I say most of us, it's not been the experience of everybody I know, but for most of us, growing up, our nuclear family was pretty much the world to us. For the early part of our lives, we think of mom, dad, siblings, 
as the boundaries of our whole world. They define normalcy for us. Remember that? How growing up, you just thought your own family was normal till you went to school and got out there a little bit, and you're like, we're not so normal after all. We're a little weird. But growing up, you just believed your family was everything normal, even good or bad. This is how life is. And, and for me, growing up in the early years, this was my family. This is what I thought of when I thought of family. The shadows don't quite show our faces, but we're two really goofy-looking little kids. And for me, family always meant mom, dad, and my brother. Those three people were the boundaries of family. But then we grew up, and we went away to school and found jobs. We found women who were willing to look at us for the rest of their lives, uh, even bear us a ginormous number of children. And a strange thing happened as that progression went on. The locus of family changed for me. And now when I think of family, I think of Jeannie and my four kids. And so whereas in the beginning I thought of family as my parents and my brother, now family is my wife and my children. And that doesn't mean that the people formerly known as my family don't matter anymore. They are still my family. They're my relatives. They are intensely important to me. But now they are what we call extended family, right? Extended family. There's so many of us. Look at what, what are we thinking? Making so many other human beings. And so over the course of my life, what I used to think of as just my family expanded to now my family is part of yet a bigger family. And there's a richness to that when it's all functioning very well. And I think this idea of extended family and nuclear family is a very helpful paradigm for us to think about what the Thrive Network and Church with a capital C really is meant to be. And so this morning, I want to look at some of the benefits of being together like this in an extended family and why viewing it as family is critically important for what the experience is going to be like for us. So I think one of the first benefits of being in a church family, an extended family, is that there's encouragement to be had with one another. When an extended family is functioning at its best, the members of that family are deeply connected and invested with one another, right? I know that that brings about some pain for us because not everybody feels that way or enjoys that kind of relationship with their extended family. Many people grow up and they lose touch with their adult siblings. They lose touch with their parents or they just never really had a great experience growing up and were happy to escape the clutches of that original family. But when family is functioning at its best, it's one of the most enriching places for our lives. And when people are connected this way, they grieve together when things are going poorly, and they rejoice together when things are going well. And in a healthy extended family, there isn't this spirit of comparison or competition that seems to be like a virus in every other part of our world. I mean, can we admit that our world is full of this stupid game of comparing and competing and measuring ourselves against other people? And it makes you insane because it renders you incapable of accepting and enjoying the life you have. You have a great life. You have this life God gave you, but you can't accept it because there's always comparing. And that's what dysfunction looks like in a healthy extended family. We're able to go to our brother-in-law's mega mansion and not feel at the same time depressed over the lowly state of our own house. Do you understand that feeling? 
you'll know when family and, and real connection is alive in your life because you can celebrate the wins in another person's life without feeling at the same time somehow overshadowed or lost over how compared to them, you don't fare as well. You don't measure up. You know, our culture has given us this concept of the hater. What's a hater? Right? Haters going to hate, right? You, all, you hear that? The, the less urban-flavored people are like, well, yeah, what exactly is a hater? Let me explain it to you. A hater is someone who cannot be happy for anybody else. And every time something good happens to somebody else, a hater feels a moral obligation to cut them down a couple notches, to be negative, to be judgmental, to be critical. So somebody says, hey, you know, John just got a promotion. He's doing pretty well. And the hater says, well, if he's doing so well, how come he drives an 87 Taurus, huh? That's a hater. A hater does not have the ability to rejoice over someone else's good fortune because there is a zero-sum game for them. Everybody else's gain is somehow my comparative loss. And as a result, the ability, the capacity for joy is completely withered and they cannot grow through other people's lives. Do you get that? And it's a huge loss because the hater misses out on something tremendous that God offers us when we live in community without that spirit of comparison and competition. When we look at the beginning of Paul's letter to the Romans, here's one of the things he wrote in greeting to that church. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but he's probably saying all over the known world such as it is to us. I don't know if the Native Americans in the Western Hemisphere heard about the Roman church. But the idea is news was spreading like crazy that these people in Rome are crazy. They are on fire for Jesus. They're doing stuff we couldn't even dream of. Now, how do you feel when you hear the good reports coming out about another church? Oh, did you hear about that church? Oh, my gosh, their facility. Their pastor is such a good communicator. Oh, my goodness, their kids' ministry is unbelievable. The haters going to go, whatever, you know. We're probably a mile wide and an inch deep, whatever, you know. And the hater feels the need to be critical about the blessings that another church is receiving. But what we dream of for our network is that that spirit would be banished and that we would be able to rejoice together over one another's good fortune. In fact, Paul says he is longing to go visit them. And he says, in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I, listen, may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. See, I think there's this drive to privatize faith and make it entirely about me and Jesus. I don't need the rest of y'all. But the truth is that our faith grows best in the context of community. Because I have my own weird, narrow way of loving and knowing Jesus. But he is working in very different ways in and through your life. And when I see you, for example, hanging on to your faith in the midst of trials I may never have to experience, I see beauty. I see power there. The realness of Jesus Christ takes on new form, new reality for me 
because through your life, a journey I can't necessarily follow, I see how God is being raised up in your life, and I marvel. Paul said in Ephesians 3.15 that one of the central purposes of the church is to put on display to the rest of the world and to the spiritual realm the multifaceted wisdom and glory of God. Meaning that when the church is at its best, it shines and radiates glory and honor to God. And there's a way that you will know God in the church that you could never hope to know him all by yourself. Haven't you ever had that moment where you're like, wow, being around you, I see Jesus very differently than when I just think about him by myself. And I think that's one of the great things. So our dream for Thrive is that we would never, ever hate on each other in this network. But whenever something great happens to the other churches, we would rejoice together. And whenever they come up with something novel and ingenious and powerful and fruitful, we would rejoice and then shortly thereafter steal all those good ideas and implement them in our own church. That we would act like a healthy extended family. Let me give you another benefit of walking together in this network. And that is support. You know, not too long ago, Jeannie and I were writing our last will and testament, which I'm discovering now is something that that most Asian people I know don't like doing because they're superstitious. They think you write your will and you're going to die the next year or something. So people act like if I just don't write my will, I'm warding off death. Don't be dumb. Don't be stupid. You got to write your will. So we're writing our will, and we realized, who are we going to ask to take care of our four children if we die? Now, that's a big ask when you got four of them. (laughs) And and as we're, like, looking around, everyone's, like, not wanting to meet our gaze. You know, please don't dump those four kids on me. So I went, and I asked my brother and Betty, would you be the guardians over our children if we were to die? It's a pretty big ask, but they joyfully said they would. I mean, this is what they'd inherit. Okay? It's kind of crazy if you think about how many people we've made in the four of us. And that's a big ask. Now, just to be fair, we also made them the beneficiaries of our life insurance policies because they'd have to buy one of these just to get everybody moving around, right? Um, And as I thought about us being dead and our children living with my brother and my sister-in-law, there was a great peace that settled over my heart because I did, it wasn't theoretical for me. I knew that they would love my children as if my children were their own. I know it because when we've vacationed together, when we've hung out together, we've seen it. We've done that for each other already while we're still alive. So in death, I know that my children would have another set of parents that they could really turn to as their own. And I know that if, the, if they had asked me the same thing in reverse, we would gladly do the same for them. See, one of the marks of a healthy extended family is that there is no question, no hesitation that should the need arise, we will be there for each other. That when the worst possible things happen, you know that your friends might suddenly get real scarce, but family, when it's working right, 
is there for you. Not just because they're obligated to be there, but because they feel your pain and burden as their own, and they volunteer what you could not dream to ask. That's what family does. Paul wrote in his letter to the Galatian church, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In a healthy family, there isn't this language of mine and yours, but there's just ours. You want to know how you could tell whether you're really close to a group of people or not? Go out to a restaurant and have a meal and watch what happens when the check comes. When you're with people you're really close to, someone will just go, look, I'll pick up the tab. You get me next time. Don't worry about it, guys. It's on me. That's the best case. Even in the worst case, if you're close to the people, everyone just goes, what's the total? Let's divide it by the total number of us. We'll all just split the bill evenly. Now, here's how you know you're not that close to those people. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You all had a couple drinks. You had the steak. You had dessert. I had salad and water. I am not going to split this bill evenly with y'all. There's no way that we ate the same drink, the same amount. Why should I pay extra for you to be a glutton? Give me that check. Give me that check. Let me see here. So I, I'm going to put in about 1150 because that's how much I had. You guys take care of the rest. Whenever it comes down to that, you know this is not a group of people you need to be around ever again. Because you can't even bear the thought of paying a little extra for them to have a Coke and a piece of pie. Are you feeling me? You want to know if you're close to people, it's when you don't nickel and dime everything, when it's not mine and yours, but everything is ours. It's all going to come around because we do that. We're family. We're together. We're going to eat again, and next time it'll be Bob Chins and it'll be your turn. Today's Culver's is my turn. It's all going to work out. I'm blessed by that, right? When you split up everything and everything is even, Stephen, and just and fair, it's fiscally satisfying, but relationally very off-putting, isn't it? And it's our hope that in the Thrive Network, as we endeavor to do lots of things together, we're not always going, well, you guys had one-third of the people at the picnic. We had two-thirds, so you should pay one-third for the chicken. We, should. we don't want to be totally like that. What we want to say is, whatever it takes... We're going to do this together, and as long as I got a dollar, you got at least 50 cents, okay? If the worst should happen to you, I will do whatever I can to even you up. There was a time in the early days of the church when a terrible famine struck Jerusalem. And a couple weeks ago when I was here with you, I preached about that, didn't I? And in the midst of this terrible famine, the call goes out that we need help. We're going to starve to death. And all these churches rally to the assistance of that Christian community in Jerusalem. In fact, I was here a couple weeks ago in the spirit of exactly what we're talking about, support. Because my little baby brother was homesick, coughing. No, never mind, I never missed one Sunday of my life at harvest due to sickness. But, you know, that's what it means to be the younger sibling. Sometimes you're not that tough. And, and so I stood in and I said, look, Steve, listen, you stay home, get some rest. Big brother's going to come and preach for you at your church. <laughs> now, I did that because we're family. And I'm not just talking about me and him. I'm talking about us. 
When I stood here two weeks ago and preached to Emmanuel, I wasn't preaching to somebody else's church. I really felt like I was preaching to our church. That's the spirit of what we're talking about here. It's why we're building the Thrive Network, so that it doesn't have to be this world of yours and mine and territory, but everything we do is ours together because that's the nature of the Father that we worship. And so Paul, writing to the Corinthians, as he talks about this wonderful outpouring of help and support, here's what he teaches them. He says, right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need, and later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. See, that's the way it works. Sometimes we have a lot. Sometimes you have a lot, but if we will commit to take care of each other, in the end, it will be indiscernible who has more and who has less. We will all have enough because we're there for each other. It is so sad to me when someone in the church is doing poorly, struggling, and their relatives who are doing much better turn a blind eye to their plight so that friends and church have to step in where family would not. We don't want our church family to be like that. If calamity befalls Emmanuel, the people at Harvest will not look across the aisle and go, sucks to be you guys. Should have planned ahead. Even if your pain is self-inflicted, family will step in and bail you out, won't they? A friend might stand there at the jail and go, well, before I put out the bail money, who are you with? What were you doing? You deserve to be in there? Family doesn't ask questions like that. They pay the bail and go, I'm going to beat you up later. But I'm going to bail you out right now because half of the pain in our life is self-inflicted, isn't it? Half the pain in our life is because we're stupid. We make mistakes. We plan poorly. And family bails you out and asks questions later. I really pray that that's the spirit with which our churches, starting with our two churches, and as we grow, will always be bound together by that spirit. And here's what Paul says to them in the next chapter. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, which is the practical level of help, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. And what he's saying is when we serve one another this way, we're not just going, hey, thank you, but we're also at the same time saying, thank God that our Father puts together a family like this, that he raised us in such a manner that the siblings don't look at each other and go, whatever, dude. I'm not connected to you. I have nothing to do with you. You take care of yourself. But we look at our father and says, what a family you have raised up here. That my brothers and my sisters love me with this unselfish, sacrificial love. Let's look at yet another benefit. You guys still with me? You guys out partying late last night, some of you? All right. So pinch, pinch the waist of the person sitting next to you. Just remind them that we're here in the house of God. Guidance. A couple years ago, Jeannie and I were contemplating the purchase of a new home. And it was a bit of an upgrade in home. We had a lot more space to play around with. And we did it for a number of personal reasons, and we did it for a number of ministry reasons. But because of the finances involved, it was not an easy decision to reach. And most of our life together, Jeannie and I have found it very easy to receive guidance from the Lord, get quick agreement on things. And we've almost always been on the same page. But in this one issue, 
we found this strange thing. Like, we just could not quite get a handle on what we're supposed to do. We would make a decision, like, that's it. No more talking. That's what we're going to do. And then 10 minutes later, Jeannie would text me, I don't know anymore. I'm like, you crazy. What is wrong? We had it sealed. Stop looking. But it was back and forth. And when I saw that, I didn't have peace. Something was, was going on. And an interesting thing happened. Like when a pastor, you know, when church people have a conundrum like this, they often turn to the pastors and go, pastor, give me, I, who, do I, who am I supposed to turn to? Who's my pastor? So I talked about it with some friends, some colleagues, and it was helpful But it occurred to me one night as I was lying there sleepless in the middle of the night, what if I asked my parents? Now, i got to admit to you, that's something I haven't done very much in my adult life. If anything, it's been the opposite. I've tried to give my parents advice. I'm very concerned about their well-being, and I'm like, Mom, Dad, you guys don't know what you're doing. We've got to help you out. But it occurred to me sitting there sleepless, like, I'm so stupid. God has given me my parents as a form of counsel and I've neglected it for so long. So the next morning, I called them and I went to their house. And we talked. And it was the most incredible conversation. My parents, in less than an hour of conversation, unraveled by God's grace all the tension I was feeling. And I came home and shared with Jeannie what my parents had shared with me. And that was the end of it. And we moved forward with this decision with so much peace in our hearts. Now, I think what brought the most comfort to me was not necessarily the content of their advice, which was in itself very good, very sound. But what I got so blessed by was the way that my parents clearly demonstrated they were with us in the tension of the decision. They weren't listening to me like they were listening to some stranger at a bar. They were listening to me as if their lives were hanging in the balance as well. And when they gave advice, they weren't lobbing advice bombs over the fence at us. They were right there with us. They felt the heaviness of the worst-case scenario. And they pledged their help if the worst should happen. But they said, we believe that you can do this, and this is the way you should go. And just knowing they were in our corner, that I could trust them, that they were not just giving me advice and then wiping their feet of me, but they were with us and for us. That brought such encouragement to us. You know, sometimes churches get stuck like that too. Every church doesn't have it all figured out. Even guys like the Apostle Paul had moments where they could not quite you know, get a handle on an issue. And I'm not doing justice at all to these stories. This is a topical sermon which I normally don't like preaching But I want to just touch on one episode in Paul's life where he and Barnabas were confronted in Antioch at their new church plant with a group of guys who had moved into town and were teaching the converts, I know you're Christians, but you're also Jews, and you cannot be saved if you don't follow the law of Moses and become circumcised. It says Paul and Barnabas argued vehemently with these guys, but there was no break in the argument. It was a stalemate. And finally, when they could not get resolution, what did they do? It says here, Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. When Paul and Barnabas got stuck, 
They traveled to Jerusalem to talk to their other elders and apostles, the, what was known as the council in Jerusalem. They said, can you guys help us with this? What is the right decision on this matter? These guys are saying, well, that's just your opinion. We agree to disagree, but we think this is a matter of clearly objective, absolute right and wrong. What do you say on the issue? And the elders and apostles in Jerusalem heard the situation. They felt the heaviness and weight of it. And then after much prayer and deliberation, they rendered what? Not an opinion, but a decision. They reached a decision, and then it says that they sent a delegation back to Antioch along with a letter that carried this decision. And here's the aftermath. Here's the reaction of the Christians in Antioch to that letter. The messengers went at once to Antioch, where they called a general meeting of the believers and delivered the letter. And there was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. That just makes me happy. Because I've been in that place before where a church is stuck. And everybody's got a different opinion. Have you ever been in a room like that where everybody's shouting at the top of their lungs? Everybody's so committed to their particular perspective. And it seems like we're never going to get anywhere on this issue. I'm just get four people to try to agree what restaurant to eat at on a Friday. And you're going to get in a situation like that, right? What do you do when you're that stuck and everyone is digging in and saying, this is what our position is? It is so helpful to have another body outside of you, above you, to whom you can turn and say, look, we're not sure exactly what's going on here, but this is the way we're feeling like we're led. Do you agree with this? Do we have our heads screwed on right? And it's not just to affirm our perspective, but to say, are we standing with the rest of God's kingdom on this? Or are we that weird little family who does things strangely? I remember the first time I discovered that a lot of people kept their garbage cans under the kitchen sink. Raise your hand if you guys do that. You keep the kitchen garbage under the kitchen sink. All right. I, I, I never saw that growing up. And I, I remember meeting one family that did that. I'm like, why would you put the garbage under the... And, and I realized, I thought that was weird until I realized how many of my friends did it. And, and there's this idea that like everything seems normal and right to your own local perspective until you expand out and realize there's many ways to approach it. Are we standing with the rest of Christendom in this? When you cut yourself off and you isolate yourself from other viewpoints, you know what happens is the leader of that little group becomes way too disproportionately powerful and he can begin to shape the beliefs and the practices of that body without any outside perspective saying, you people are crazy. You can't do that. Cut it out. But when we have this outer body there's this guidance that we receive which helps us stay in agreement with and on the right track with what the rest of God's people are doing. Let me give you one last thing, and we'll be done. And that's correction. I saved the most unpleasant benefit for last. If guidance is when we seek somebody else out to get their wisdom... Correction is when somebody else seeks us out to give us their wisdom because we don't have any, right? So guidance is when you go, hey, pastor, can I talk to you about something? I need your advice. Correction is when the pastor goes, hey, come to my office. And you're like, oh, what? I'm busted. And you're, you got that hollow feel in your stomach because that's when somebody looks at your life and is concerned for you and says, look, because I love you, I can't just passively watch you act like this. I've got to say something to you. Authority is always going to be an important part of a network of churches. 
I know we say we're family, we're friends and all that, but if we don't have some expression of authority in this network, I think at some point we will not be able to serve each other well. And so we're working to figure out how to do that without destroying the flavor of real community and real friendship among us. There come times when because of crisis or conflict or disqualification, the leaders of a local church are no longer fit or able to govern that church. And when that happens, the broader body of Christians in that network have to send in leaders to take over and begin to govern that church through the crisis. In a traditional denominational setting, that would be some representative from the regional district or from the national office. And I've seen that play out in a number of cases, and it's kind of ugly because for most of the year, there is no real connection with those people. But in the midst of crisis, these people come in from another city, people you've never seen before, and they go, we're shutting it down, we're taking over. And everyone's like, who are you? You know the feeling, the emotional feeling is like when you watch a cop movie and the feds move in and brush aside local law enforcement. All right, we got it from here, you know. And everyone's like, whatever, you guys think you're such big shots. Nobody enjoys getting pushed out. Or it's when corporate sends in a team of heavy-handed people to meddle in branch office affairs. You know, nobody likes when, when someone says, hey, corporate's coming today. That's almost never a happy thing. Corporate's coming today. It just feels very, um, like you don't welcome it. You're not happy about that. It feels like someone's authority is stamping down on you and preempting your own voice and your own autonomy. I think that's the problem with when a network of churches becomes so scattered, so large, that when it comes time in the midst of pain and crisis and everybody's spinning in circles and, and, and they don't know which way is up, these people you've never really seen before step in and take over and begin governing the church. It's like if something happened to your parents and a total stranger came in and goes, I'm your new mommy and daddy now. Go to bed. It's not welcome. And that's why seeing that, we're working very hard to build a different kind of spirit in our network. Because in those situations where the pain is so great, confusion is so high, we don't need a stranger coming in and taking over. Proverbs 27.6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted. When we need correction, when we need a course adjustment, it's easier to receive that from someone you know and love and trust. And that's why we try to do these combined worships on a regular basis. That's why we try to get our leaders in front of one another's congregations regularly so that should the need arise that Steve messes up and does something terrible and I have to come and take over, we know it will never work the other way around. So if that happens, I don't want you to feel like, who are you? I want you to know that as we step in to lead through crisis, we love you. You know who we are. You trust us, and you know that we are not against you, but we are for you. You know, there seems to be this prevailing idea today in America that a true friend never gets in your face. A true friend leaves you alone. You know, how many times have you heard this conversation? You, you venture out and you have the courage to say, look, friend, what you're doing is messed up. I just got to say something. I can't be among the multitudes to just sit by and watch you do this. I got to say something. 
and that person says back to you, I thought you were my friend. Has that ever happened to you? I thought you were my friend. Uh-huh, I am being your friend. All those other people who are like, whatever, I don't care what they do. That's not your friend. Those are the people who, if you had a poop stain on the back of your pants, they'd be like, oh, look at that, look at that. He got a poop stain on his pants. They would never tell you anything. They would just murmur about it amongst themselves. They see your poop stain, but they're not going to tell you about it because that's not a real friend, is it? A real friend will risk equilibrium, will risk the peace that they feel with you in order to bless you with correction. That's a real friend. It's a risk. No one needs the added drama in their life. You know how many times I have to step in that situation and someone goes, you're the pastor, you should go say something. I'm like, I really don't want to say anything. I want to just go home, turn on the NBA playoffs, enjoy myself for one afternoon. Why do I got to get involved? And when someone does it, it is a gift to you. We, we like to think maybe that the leaders of the early church always got along. They kumbayaed and hugged each other. But there was this really sharp incident that happened between Paul and Peter where Peter was acting like a complete hypocrite. He was two-faced. And it says here, I love this verse in Galatians 2.11. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to open up a can on him. I had to go medieval on his buttocks. And it says, I had to oppose him, listen, to his face. He wasn't like, uh, did you guys tell Peter that that's really jacked up what he's doing? He didn't just stop returning Peter's text messages. He didn't defriend Peter on Facebook. He went right up to him and go, Peter, what you are doing is very wrong. And I'm saying it to your face. And because Paul did that, the church was refined and Peter was refined. Peter's ministry was rescued in large part because Paul called out his hypocrisy. Do not punish the friend who is a true enough friend to say what nobody else will. Don't presume for a minute that your real friends are the ones who leave you alone. Those are the people who see you as nothing more than background scenery. They don't care about you. At least they don't care about you enough to risk the relationship for your benefit. I hope that as we bond together as churches, as an extended family, that if we see something messed up happening in the other church, we'd have the courage to stand up and say something. And you know what? That's already been happening. Every week, the pastors of Thrive are meeting together, and we are wrestling through heavy issues, and we're sharpening and shaping one another. It's been a real blessing. We have a, a group of people formed, forming a board, a temporary provisional board for the network. And when we get together, we sharpen one another. And it's been a really, really healthy dynamic thus far. And I'm really optimistic about what the future holds. So let me close with this. You know, when a woman is pregnant for the first time with her first baby, in like the first five months, they don't always show. There are some women who don't get a baby bump till about month number five or six, Right? You could hardly tell they're pregnant, but that doesn't mean nothing's happening inside. In the first two trimesters, there is furious activity going on inside that womb. And I feel like that's kind of where Thrive is right now. Mostly starting with Steve. Steve is about to, to lose his health over this network. I'm going to tell you that right now. The rest of us are sort of acting like we're working, but Steve's really working hard. 
building this network, and we're trying our best to back him up. And right now, I know that Thrive is just a logo and a word you hear, but that doesn't mean nothing's happening. A lot has been happening, and it's exciting, and the infrastructure is being laid for what I believe is going to be a beautiful extended family of churches. And pretty soon, we're going to start showing. And you know, when you're pregnant, everyone's like, I wish this baby would come out already. I wish this baby... And then in the first three days, you're like, I want to put this baby right back in. It's taken over our lives. We'll get used to it. Right now, Thrive is just an idea, and many people are asking us, when is this thing going to come out already? What is it? When it comes out, when it's born, it's going to take over your life too. Most of us grew up in churches never fully experiencing the capital C church. It was always church was just our local congregation. And there was never really a meaningful connection to any other church for most of us growing up. So this is going to be a new experience. It's going to stretch each of us. In mid-August, we're going to have a fellowship. We're going to have a worship service together, and we're going to go to a picnic. Do you all remember what happened the last time our two churches tried to have a picnic? We had an ICC picnic and an HCC picnic at the same park. It can't happen again. No, no, no. We're not going to do that anymore. When we have a Thrive picnic, that doesn't mean you get a little blank and find all your own church friends and sit in safety and go, do you want to go over there and say something to those other people? We're not going to do that anymore. This network is real. It's about to be born, and we've got to step out of our comfort zone and stretch ourselves because we're becoming family. You're going to see a whole lot more of each other, and I'm inviting you now to get used to it. These early events we put on are the early practice for what will become the new normal for us as churches. And there's going to be a price tag attached to it, but there's going to be great joy and a whole new way of thinking about the kingdom of God. And once it's born, it's going to continue to reproduce. And we believe with vision that as we plant churches, the network will organically grow into a larger and larger extended family. And I really pray that as our network grows the DNA, the foundation of the way we relate to each other will still revolve around these beautiful practices and these great benefits. That we will be a network, a family that will encourage each other, that will support each other, that will guide each other and correct each other so that together we are stronger than any of our churches would be standing on their own. Amen? This is the family of God. This is the beauty of the family, our Father is raising. So, Emmanuel, we at Harvest have a huge crush on you. We're really into you. And we want to marry you. Really praying that the feeling's mutual. Let's do this together. And let's display to the world the glory of God to the beauty of his church. Amen. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I want to invite you, because I think the pastors and leaders of the church have had a bit of a head start on the rest of the church. We've been talking about and deliberating Thrive-related issues for a long time, and I'm at the point of impatience now where just, I want this thing to happen because we've been dwelling on it for so long. But for many of you, it's going to come out of left field. It's going to be all brand new. And so I want to invite you to pray this way. God, I don't know if I've ever experienced the beauty, the reality of the broader church. I've dabbled. I've gone to multi-church gatherings, but this is going to be something new, and I'm not sure how I'm going to react to it. 
So would you pray, God, would you begin cultivating my heart so that I'm capable of a love for your church that goes beyond the comfortable love I have for my own congregation. I know you've picked the church you go to for reasons, and no one is asking you to forget about that. Your primary life will be lived in your own church. But Thrive will never really take off unless the congregations own what God is shaping us to become. This cannot be a leader-driven movement. It has to be the whole church embracing the whole church. And I think that's going to stretch us. So would you just pray that God would begin that work in you? And this may sound a little strange, but I'm going to ask you to pray another quick practical prayer. Would you pray in advance that on August 17th, when we get together for our combined worship and picnic, that it will be one of the most deeply edifying experiences of our young network for you personally? <laughs>